It is the blessed privilege of the believer, no matter how great a failure he feels himself to be, provided he is sincere in mourning his failures and honest in his endeavors to please his Lord, to remind himself that he is approaching one in covenant relationship with him, yea, to plead that covenant before him. David, despite all his falls, acknowledged he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. 2 Samuel 23.5 And so may the reader, if he grieves over sins as David did, confess them as contritely, and has the same pantings of heart after holiness. It makes a world of difference in our praying when we can take hold of God's covenant, assured of our personal interest in it. When we plead the fulfillment of covenant promises, Jeremiah 32, verses 40 and 41, and Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17, for example, we present a reason God will not reject, for he cannot deny himself. Still another thing is essential if our prayers are to meet with the divine approval. The motive prompting them and the petition itself must alike be right. It is at this point so many fail. As it is written, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. James 4.3 Not so was it with Elijah. It was not his own advancement or aggrandizement he sought, but the magnifying of his master and vindication of his holiness, which had been so dishonored by his people's turning aside to Baal worship. We all need to test ourselves here. If the motive behind our praying proceeds from nothing higher than self, we must expect to be denied. Only when we truly ask for that which will promote God's glory do we ask aright. This is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. 1 John 5.14 And we ask according to his will when we make requests for what will bring honor and praise to the giver. Alas, how carnal much of our praying is. Finally, if our prayers are to be acceptable to God, they must issue from those who can truthfully declare, I am thy servant, one submissive to the authority of another, one who takes the place of subordination, one who is under the orders of his master, one who has no will of his own, one whose constant aim is to please his master and promote his interests. And surely the Christian will make no demur against this. Is not this the very place into which his illustrious Redeemer entered? Did not the Lord of glory take upon him the form of a servant, Philippians 2.7, and conduct himself as such all the days of his flesh? If we maintain our servant character when we approach the throne of grace, we shall be preserved from the blatant irreverence which characterizes not a little so-called praying of today. In place of making demands or speaking to God as though we were his equals, we shall humbly present our requests. And what are the main things a servant desires? A knowledge of what his master requires and needed supplies so that his orders may be carried out. And that I have done all these things at thy word. 1 Kings 18.36 And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I have done all these things at thy word. 
This was advanced by the prophet as an additional plea that God would send down fire from heaven in answer to his supplications as an attestation of his fidelity to his master's will. It was in response to divine orders that the prophet had restrained rain from the earth, had now convened Israel and the false prophets together, and had suggested an open trial or contest that by a visible sign from heaven it might be known who was the true God. All this he had not done of himself, but by direction from above. It adds great force to our petitions when we are able to plead before God our faithfulness to his commands. Said David to the Lord, Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. And again, I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord, put me not to shame. Psalm 119, verses 22 and 31. For a servant to act without orders from his master is self-will and presumption. God's commands are not grievous to those whose wills are surrendered to him, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Psalm 19:11. In this life as well as in the next, as every obedient soul discovers for himself. The Lord has declared, "Them that honor me, I will honor." 1 Samuel 2:30. And he is faithful in making good his promises. The way to honor him is to walk in his precepts. This is what Elijah had done, and now he counted upon Jehovah honoring him by granting this petition. When the servant of God has the testimony of a good conscience and the witness of the Spirit that he is acting according to the divine will, he may rightly feel himself to be invincible, that men, circumstances, and satanic opposition are of no more account than the chaff of the summer threshing floor. God's word shall not return unto him void. His purpose shall be accomplished, though heaven and earth pass away. This, too, was what filled Elijah with calm assurance in that crucial hour. God would not mock one who had been true to him. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. Verse 37. How those words breathed forth the intensity and vehemency of the prophet's zeal for the Lord of hosts. No mere formal lip service was this, but real supplication, fervent supplication. This repetition intimates how truly and how deeply Elijah's heart was burdened. He could not endure the dishonor done to his master on every side. He yearned to see him vindicate himself. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, was the earnest cry of a pent-up soul. How his zeal and intensity puts to shame the coldness of our prayers. It is only the genuine cry of a burdened heart that reaches the ear of God. It is the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. Oh, what need we have to seek the aid of the Holy Spirit, for he alone can inspire real prayer within us. That this people may know that thou art the Lord God. Here was the supreme longing of Elijah's soul, that it might be openly and incontrovertibly demonstrated that Jehovah, and not Baal, or any idol, was the true God. That which dominated the prophet's heart was a yearning that God would be glorified. And is it not thus with all his genuine servants? They are willing to endure any hardships, glad to spend themselves and be spent, if so be that their Lord is magnified. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 21.13 How many since the apostle have actually died in his service 
and for the praise of his holy name. Such, too, is the deepest and most constant desire of each Christian who is not in a backslidden condition. All his petitions issue from and center in this, that God may be glorified. They have in their measure drunk of the spirit of their Redeemer. Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. John 17.1 When such is the motive behind our petition, it is certain of an answer. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. Verse 37 Back from wandering after forbidden objects unto thyself. Back from Baal to the service and worship of the true and living God. Next to the glory of his master, the deliverance of Israel from the deceits of Satan was the deepest longing of Elijah's heart. He was no selfish and self-centered individual who was indifferent to the fate of his fellows. Rather was he anxious that they should have for their portion and supreme good that which so fully satisfied his own soul. And again we say, is not the same thing true of all genuine servants and saints of God? Next to the glory of their Lord, that which lies nearest their hearts and forms the constant subject of their prayers is the salvation of sinners, that they may be turned from their evil and foolish ways unto God. Note well the two words we have placed in italics, that thou hast turned their hearts back again. Nothing short of the heart being turned unto God will avail anything for eternity, and nothing short of God's putting forth his mighty power can effect this change. Having considered in detail and at some length each petition in Elijah's prevailing prayer, let us call attention to one other feature which marked it, and that is its noticeable brevity. It occupies but two verses in our Bibles and contains only 63 words in the English translation, still fewer in the original Hebrew. What a contrast is this from the long, drawn-out and wearisome prayers in many pulpits today. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Such a verse as this appears to have no weight with the majority of ministers. One of the marks of the scribes and Pharisees was that they, for a pretense to impress the people with their piety, make long prayers. Mark 12.40 we would not overlook the fact that when the Spirit's unction is enjoyed, the servant of Christ may be granted much liberty to pour out his heart at length. Yet this is the exception rather than the rule, as God's word clearly proves. One of the many evils engendered by lengthy prayers in the pulpit is the discouraging of simple souls in the pew. They are apt to conclude that if their private devotions are not sustained at length, then the Lord must be withholding from them the spirit of prayer. If any of our readers be distressed because of this, we would ask them to make a study of the prayers recorded in Holy Writ, in Old and New Testaments alike, and they will find that almost all of them are exceedingly short ones. The prayers which brought such remarkable responses from heaven were like this one of Elijah's, brief and to the point, fervent but definite. No soul is heard because of the multitude of his words, but only when his petitions come from the heart are prompted by a longing for God's glory and are presented in childlike faith. 
the Lord mercifully preserve us from hypocrisy and formality and make us feel our deep need of crying to him. Teach us not how to, but to pray. Chapter 19, The Answer by Fire In our last chapter, we sought to make practical application unto ourselves of the prayer that was offered unto God by Elijah upon Mount Carmel. It hath been recorded for our learning, Romans 15.4, and encouragement, and many valuable lessons are contained therein, if only we have hearts to receive them. With rare exceptions, the modern pulpit furnishes little or no help on this important matter. Rather, it is a stumbling block to those desirous of knowing the way of the Lord more perfectly. If young Christians are anxious to discover the secrets of acceptable and effectual prayer, they must not be guided by what they now hear and see going on in the religious world. Instead, they must turn to that divine revelation which God has graciously designed as a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. If they humbly seek instruction from God's word and trustfully count upon his Holy Spirit's aid, they will be delivered from that anomaly which is now called prayer. On the one hand, we need to be delivered from a cold, mechanical, and formal type of praying which is merely a lip service in which there is no actual approach unto the Lord, no delighting of ourselves in him, no pouring out of the heart before him. On the other hand, we need to be preserved from that unseemly, wild, and fanatical frenzy, which in some quarters is mistaken for spiritual warmth and earnestness. There are some who too much resemble the worshippers of Baal when they pray, addressing God as though he were deaf. They seem to regard excitement of their animal spirits and violent contortions of body as the essence of supplication and despise those who speak unto God in a calm and composed, meet and orderly manner. Such irreverent frenzy is even worse than formality. Noise is not to be mistaken for fervor, nor raving for devotion. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. 1 Peter 4.7 is the divine corrective for this evil. Now we turn to and consider the remarkable sequel to the beautiful but simple prayer of Elijah. And again we would say to the reader, let us attempt to visualize the scene and as far as we can take our place on Carmel. Cast your eye over the vast concourse of people there assembled. View the large company of the now exhausted and defeated priests of Baal. Then seek to catch the closing words of the Tishbite's prayer. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. 1 Kings 18.37 What an awful moment follows. What intense eagerness on the part of the assembled multitude to behold the issue. What breathless silence must there have been. What shall be the outcome? Will the servant of Jehovah be baffled as had been the prophets of Baal? If no answer follow, if no fire come down from heaven, then the Lord is no more entitled to be regarded as God than Baal. Then all that Elijah had done, all his testimony to his master being the only true and living God, would be looked upon as a delusion. Solemn, intensely solemn moment. But the short prayer of Elijah had scarcely ended when we are told that the then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Verse 38 
By that fire the Lord avouched himself to be the only true God, and by it he bore witness to the fact that Elijah was his prophet and Israel his people. Oh, the amazing condescension of the Most High in repeatedly making demonstration of the most evident truths concerning his being, perfections, the divine authority of his word, and the nature of his worship. Nothing is more wonderful than this, unless it be the perverseness of men who reject such repeated demonstrations. How gracious of God to furnish such proofs and make all doubting utterly unreasonable and excuseless. Those who receive the teachings of Holy Writ without a question are not credulous fools, for so far from following cunningly devised fables, they accept the unimpeachable testimony of those who were the eyewitnesses of the most stupendous miracles. The Christian's faith rests upon a foundation that need not fear the closest investigation. Then the fire of the Lord fell. That this was no ordinary but rather supernatural fire was plainly evident from the effects of it. It descended from above. Then it consumed the pieces of the sacrifice and then the wood on which they had been laid. This order making it clear that it was not by means of the wood the flesh of the bullock was burnt. Even the twelve stones of the altar were consumed to make it further manifest that this was no common fire. As though that were not sufficient attestation of the extraordinary nature of this fire, it consumed the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench, thus making it quite obvious that this was a fire whose agency nothing could resist. In each instance the action of the fire was downwards, which is contrary to the nature of all earthly fire. No trickery was at work here, but a supernatural power that removed every ground of suspicion in the spectators, leaving them face to face with the might and majesty of him they had so grievously slighted. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Exceedingly blessed, yet unspeakably solemn was this. First, this remarkable incident should encourage weak Christians to put their trust in God, to go forth in his strength, to meet the gravest dangers, to face the fiercest enemies, and to undertake the most arduous and hazardous task to which he may call them. If our confidence be fully placed in the Lord himself, he will not fail us. He will stand by us, though no others do. He will deliver us out of the hands of those who seek our hurt. He will put to confusion those who set themselves against us. And he will honor us in the sight of those who have slandered or reproached us. Look not on the frowning faces of worldlings, O trembling believer, but fix the eye of faith upon him who has all power in heaven and in earth. Be not discouraged because you meet with so few who are like-minded, but console yourself with the grand fact that if God be for us, it matters not who is against us. How this incident should cheer and strengthen the tired servants of God. Satan may be telling you that compromise is the only wise and safe policy in such a degenerate day as this. He may be moving you to ask yourself the question, What is to become of me and my family if I persevere in preaching what is so unpopular? Then recall the case of the Apostle and how he was supported by the Lord in the most trying circumstances. Referring to his being called upon by that monster Nero to vindicate his conduct as a servant of Christ, he says, 
At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Second Timothy 4, verses 16-18 through 18. And the Lord has not changed. Put yourself unreservedly in his hands. Seek only his glory, and he will not fail you. Trust him fully as to the outcome, and he will not put you to confusion, as this writer has fully proved. How blessedly this incident exemplifies the power of faith and the efficacy of prayer. We have already said quite a little upon the prayer offered by Elijah on this momentous occasion. But let us call attention to one other essential feature that marked it, and which must mark our prayers if they are to call down responses from heaven. According to your faith be it unto you, Matthew 9.29, is one of the principles which regulates God's dealings with us. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth, Mark 9.23. Why? Because faith has to do directly with God. It brings him into the scene. It puts him upon his faithfulness, laying hold of his promises and saying, Do as thou hast said. 2 Samuel 7.25 If you want to see some of the miracles and marvels which faith can bring to pass, read slowly through Hebrews 11. And prayer is the principal channel through which faith is to operate. To pray without faith is to insult and mock God. It is written, The prayer of faith shall save the sick. James 5.15 But what is it to pray in faith? It is for the mind to be regulated and the heart to be affected by what God has said to us. It is a laying hold of his word and then counting upon him to fulfill his promises. This is what Elijah had done, as is plain from his, I have done all these things at thy word. Verse 36 Some of those things appeared utterly contrary to carnal reason, such as his venturing into the presence of the man who sought his life and ordering him to convene a vast assembly on Carmel, his pitting himself against the hundreds of false prophets, his pouring water on the sacrifice in the wood. Nevertheless, he acted on God's word and trusted him as to the outcome. Nor did God put him to confusion. He honored his faith and answered his prayer. Once again, we would remind the reader, this incident is recorded for our learning and for our encouragement. The Lord God is the same today as he was then, ready to show himself strong on the behalf of those who walk as Elijah and trust him as he did. Are you faced with some difficult situation, some pressing emergency, some sore trial? Then place it not between yourself and God, but rather put God between it and you. Meditate afresh on his wondrous perfections and infinite sufficiency, Ponder his precious promises which exactly suit your case. Beg the Holy Spirit to strengthen your faith and call it into action. So too with God's servants. If they are to accomplish great things in the name of their master, if they are to put to confusion his enemies 
and gain the victory over those who oppose if they are to be instrumental in turning the hearts of men back to God then they must look to him to work in and by them they must rely on his almighty power both to protect and carry them fully through the discharge of arduous duties they must have a single eye to God's glory in what they undertake and give themselves to believing and fervent prayer then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice as we have said above this was not only exceedingly blessed but also unspeakably solemn this will be the more evident if we call to mind those awful words our God is a consuming fire Hebrews 12:29. how rarely is this text quoted and more rarely still preached upon the pulpit often declares that God is love but maintains a guilty silence upon the equally true fact that he is a consuming fire God is ineffably holy and therefore does his pure nature burn against sin God is inexorably righteous and therefore he will visit upon every transgression and disobedience a just recompense of reward Hebrews 2.2 2. Fools make a mock at sin Proverbs 14.9 but they shall yet discover that they cannot mock God with impunity. They may defy his authority and trample upon his laws in this life, but in the next they shall curse themselves for their madness. In this world God deals mercifully and patiently with his enemies, but in the world to come they shall find out to their eternal undoing that he is a consuming fire. There upon Mount Carmel God made public demonstration of the solemn fact that he is a consuming fire. For years past he had been grievously dishonored, his worship being supplanted by that of Baal. But here before the assembled multitude he vindicated his holiness. That fire which descended from heaven in response to the earnest supplication of Elijah was a divine judgment. It was the execution of the sentence of God's outraged law. God has sworn that the soul that sinneth it shall die and he, and he will not contradict himself sin's wages must be paid either to the sinner himself or to an innocent substitute which takes his place and endures his penalty side by side with the moral law there was the ceremonial law given unto Israel in which provision was made whereby mercy could be shown the transgressor and yet at the same time the claims of divine justice be satisfied an animal without spot or blemish was slain in the sinner's stead thus it was here on Carmel the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and so the idolatrous Israelites were spared oh what a wondrous and marvelous scene is presented to us here on Mount Carmel a holy God must deal with all sin by the fire of his judgment and here was a guilty nation steeped in evil which God must judge. Must then the fire of the Lord fall immediately upon and consume that disobedient and guilty people? Was no escape possible? Yea, blessed be God, it was. An innocent victim was provided, a sacrifice to represent that sin-laden nation. On it the fire fell, consuming it, and the people were spared. What a marvelous foreshadowing was that of what took place almost a thousand years later upon another mount, even Calvary. There the Lamb of God substituted himself in the place of his guilty people, bearing their sins in his own body on the tree, 
1 Peter 2.24 There the Lord Jesus Christ suffered, the just for the unjust, that he might bring them to God. There he was made a curse, Galatians 3.13, that eternal blessing might be their portion. There the fire of the Lord fell upon his sacred head, and so intense was its heat, he cried, I thirst. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Verse 39. They could no longer doubt the existence and the omnipotence of Jehovah. There could be no deception as to the reality of the miracle. They saw with their own eyes the fire come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice. And whether they had respect to the greatness of the miracle itself, or to the fact of its having been foretold by Elijah and wrought for a special purpose, or whether they contemplated the occasion as being one worthy of the extraordinary interposition of the Supreme Being, that is, to recover his people who had been seduced into apostasy by the influence of those who were in authority, and to prove himself to be the God of their fathers, all these things combined to demonstrate its divine author and to establish the commission of Elijah, John Simpson. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord is known by his ways and works. He is described as glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Thus the controversy was settled between Jehovah and Baal. The children of Israel soon forgot what they had seen, and like their fathers who had witnessed the plagues upon Egypt and the overthrow of Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, they soon relapsed into idolatry. Awful displays of the divine justice may terrify and convince the sinner, may extort confessions and resolutions, and even dispose to many acts of obedience while the impression lasts. But something more is needed to change his heart and convert his soul. The miracles wrought by Christ left the Jewish nation still opposed to the truth. There must be a supernatural work within him for man to be born again. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Verse 40 Very solemn is this, Elijah had not prayed for the false prophets, but for this people and the sacrificed bullock avail not for them. So too with the atonement. Christ died for his people, the Israel of God, and shed not his blood for reprobates and apostates. God has caused this blessed truth, now almost universally denied, to be illustrated in the types as well as expressed definitely in the doctrinal portions of his word. The paschal lamb was appointed for and given shelter to the Hebrews, but none was provided for the Egyptians. And, my reader, unless your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, there is not the slightest ray of hope for you. There are those moved by false notions of liberality who condemn Elijah for his slaying of Baal's prophets, but they err greatly, being ignorant of the character of God and the teachings of his word. False prophets and false priests are the greatest enemies a nation can have, for they bring both temporal and spiritual evils upon it, destroying not only the bodies but the souls of men. 
To have permitted those prophets of Baal and escape would have licensed them as the agents of apostasy and exposed Israel to further corruption. It must be remembered that the nation of Israel was under the direct government of Jehovah, and to tolerate in their midst those who seduced his people into idolatry was to harbor men who were guilty of high treason against the majesty of heaven. Only by their destruction could the insult to Jehovah be avenged and his holiness vindicated. Degenerate times call for witnesses who have in view the glory of God and are not swayed by sentimentality, who are uncompromising in dealing with evil. Those who consider Elijah to have carried his sternness to an extreme length and imagine he acted in ruthless cruelty by slaying the false prophets know not Elijah's God. The Lord is glorious in holiness, and he never acts more gloriously than when he is a consuming fire to the workers of iniquity. But Elijah was only a man. True, yet he was the Lord's servant, under bonds to carry out his orders, and in slaying these false prophets he did what God's word required. See Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 18, verses 20 through 22. Under the Christian dispensation, we must not slay those who have deceived others into idolatry, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, 2 Corinthians 10.4. The application to us today is this, we must unsparingly judge whatever is evil in our lives and shelter in our hearts no rivals to the Lord our God. Let not one of them escape. Chapter 20 The Sound of Abundance of Rain Not a little is said in the scriptures about rain, yet is such teaching quite unknown today even to the vast majority of people in Christendom. In this atheistic and materialistic age, God is not only not accorded his proper place in the hearts and lives of the people, but he is banished from their thoughts and virtually excluded from the world which he has made. His ordering of the seasons, his control of the elements, his regulating of the weather is now believed by none save an insignificant remnant who are regarded as fools and fanatics. There is need then for the servants of Jehovah to set forth the relation which the living God sustains to his creation and his superintendence of and government over all the affairs of the earth to point out first that the Most High foreordained in eternity past all which comes to pass here below, and then to declare that he is now executing his predetermination and working all things after the counsel of his own will. That God's foreordination reaches to material things as well as spiritual, that it embraces the elements of earth as well as the souls of men, is clearly revealed in Holy Writ. He made a decree, the same Hebrew word as in Psalm 2-7, for the rain, Job 28-26, predestinating when, where, and how little or how much it should rain. Just as he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, Proverbs 8-29, and he hath placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it, and though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Jeremiah 5.22 The precise number, duration, and quantity of the showers has been eternally 
and unalterably fixed by the divine will, and the exact bounds of each ocean and river expressly determined by the fiat of the ruler of heaven and earth. In accordance with his foreordination, we read that God prepareth rain for the earth. Psalm 147.8 I will cause it to rain. Genesis 7.4 says the king of the firmament. Nor can any of his creatures say him nay. I will give you rain in due season. Leviticus 26.4 is his gracious promise. Yet how little is its fulfillment recognized or appreciated. On the other hand, he declares, I have withholden the rain from you. I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. Amos 4.7 and also Deuteronomy 11.17 And again, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain. Isaiah 5.6 and all the scientists in the world are powerless to reverse it. And therefore does he require of us, Ask ye of the Lord rain, Zechariah 10.1, that our dependence upon him may be acknowledged. What has been pointed out above receives striking and convincing demonstration in the part of Israel's history which we have been considering. For the space of three and a half years, there had been no rain or dew upon the land of Samaria, and that was the result neither of chance nor blind fate, but a divine judgment upon a people who had forsaken Jehovah for false gods. In surveying the drought-stricken country from the heights of Carmel, it would have been difficult to recognize that garden of the Lord which had been depicted as a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it. Deuteronomy 8, verses 7 through 9. But it had also been announced, And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust. Deuteronomy 28, verses 23 and 24. That terrible curse had been literally inflicted, and therein we may behold the horrible consequences of sin. God endures with much long-suffering the waywardness of a nation, as he does of an individual. But when both leaders and people apostatize and set up idols in the place which belongs to himself alone, sooner or later he makes it unmistakably evident that he will not be mocked with impunity and indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish become their portion. Alas, that those nations which are favored with the light of God's word are so slow to learn this salutary lesson. It seems that the hard school of experience is the only teacher. The Lord had fulfilled his awful threat by Moses and had made good his word through Elijah, 1 Kings 17.1. Nor could that fearful judgment be removed till the people at least avowedly owned Jehovah as the true God. As we pointed out at the close of a previous chapter, till the people were brought back into their allegiance to God, no favor could be expected from him. And in another chapter, neither Ahab nor his subjects were yet in any fit state of soul to be made the recipients of his blessings and mercies. 
God had been dealing with them in judgment for their awful sins, and thus far his rod had not been acknowledged, nor had the occasion of his displeasure been removed. But the wonderful miracle wrought on Carmel had entirely changed the face of things. When the fire fell from heaven in answer to Elijah's prayer, all the people fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And when Elijah ordered them to arrest the false prophets of Baal and to let not one of them escape, they promptly complied with his orders. Nor did they or the king offer any resistance when the Tishbite brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. 1 Kings 18, 39 and 40 Thus was the evil put away from them and the way opened for God's outward blessing. He graciously accepted this as their reformation and accordingly removed his scourge from them. This is ever the order. Judgment prepares the way for blessing. The awful fire is followed by the welcome rain. Once a people take their place on their faces and render to God the homage which is his due, it will not be long ere refreshing showers are sent down from heaven. As Elijah acted the part of executioner to the prophets of Baal, who had been the principal agents in the national revolt against God, Ahab must have stood by, a most unwilling spectator of that fearful deed of vengeance, not daring to resist the popular outburst of indignation or attempting to protect the men whom he had introduced and supported. And now their bodies lay in ghastly death before his eyes on the banks of the Kishon. When the last of Baal's prophets had bitten the dust, the intrepid Tishbite turned to the king and said, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. 1 Kings 18.41 What a load would his words lift from the heart of the guilty king. He must have been greatly alarmed as he stood helplessly by, watching the slaughter of his prophets, tremblingly expecting some terrible sentence to be pronounced upon him by the one whom he had so openly despised and blatantly insulted. Instead, he is allowed to depart unharmed from the place of execution, nay, bidden to go and refresh himself. How well Elijah knew the man he was dealing with. He did not bid him humble himself beneath the mighty hand of God and publicly confess his wickedness, Still less did he invite the king to join him in returning thanks for the wondrous and gracious miracle which he had witnessed. Eating and drinking was all this Satan-blinded sot cared for. As another has pointed out, it was as though the servant of the Lord had said, Get thee up to where thy tents are pitched on yon broad upland sweep. The feast is spread in thy gilded pavilion. Thy lackeys await thee. Go, feast on thy dainties, but be quick, for now that the land is rid of those traitor priests, and God is once more enthroned in his rightful place, the showers of rain cannot be long delayed. Be quick then, or the rain may interrupt thy carouse. The appointed hour for sealing the king's doom had not yet arrived. Meanwhile he is suffered, as a beast, to fatten himself for the slaughter, it is useless to expostulate with apostates. Compare John 13.27 For there is a sound of abundance of rain. It should scarcely need pointing out that Elijah was not here referring to a natural phenomenon. 
At the time when he spoke, a cloudless sky appeared as far as the eye could reach. For when the prophet's servant looked out towards the sea for any portent of approaching rain, he declared there is nothing. Verse 43. And later when he looked for a seventh time, all that could be seen was a little cloud. When we are told that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews 11.27, it was not because he beheld God with the natural eye. And when Elijah announced, there is a sound of abundance of rain, that sound was not audible to the outward ear. It was by the hearing of faith, Galatians 3.2, that the Tishbite knew the welcome rain was nigh at hand. The Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets, Amos 3.7, and the divine revelation now made known to him was received by faith. While Elijah yet abode with the widow at Zarephath, the Lord had said to him, Go, show thyself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. 18.1 And the prophet believed that God would do as he had said, and in the verse we are considering, he speaks accordingly as if it were now being done. So certain was he that his master would not fail to make good his word. It is thus that a spiritual and supernatural faith ever works. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. It is the nature of this God-given grace to bring distant things close to us. Faith looks upon things promised as though they were actually fulfilled. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.